Good morning and welcome into the annual FS Spring Ag Roundtable on 1330 WRAM and FM 94.1. And we welcome in our online listeners and those listening to us today here in Warren County, Knox, Henderson, also in Fulton, McDonough, and Hancock. So welcome to the program. Our partners today include our corporate partners, Growmark FS, and also with us, Midwest Bank. We'll meet uh, panelists here in just a moment. Also, our partners, Martin Implement, Compere Financial, OSF Healthcare, McGrew Feedlot and Equipment, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Halcom Oil, H&H Feed, also the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau, and the Patent Block Grill and Brew Pub. First of all, I want to welcome in Brian Manahan. He is with Growmark FS, our corporate sponsor once again. Thank you and welcome to your first Ag Roundtable. Yes, thank you. Good morning, everybody. I'm Brian Manahan with the Growmark FSC Division. Uh, glad to be here and uh, happy to take part in this roundtable today. Okay, thanks, Brian. Mm -hmm. Our longtime partner, Mr. Chris Gavin, who is also the uh, president and CEO of Midwest Bank. Chris, thank you for entertaining us once again. Absolutely. Glad to, glad to be able to host uh, and glad to be part of it. And uh, we look forward to a delicious lunch from the Patent Block Grill and Brew, uh, Brew Pub yes, today. Yes, we hope. We hope it's delicious, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will be. Also, I want to turn to my left today. We are welcoming in Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. It's an honor. Many congresspeople don't uh, have the time, uh, but you, you make time for your farmers, and you wanted to be here today. Well, I hope I make time for our farmers. I think that's pretty darn important. It's great to be with you, Vanessa. Thank you for allowing me to come in here. It's uh, also an honor to be able to serve on the Ag Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives and do everything we can to fight for our family farmers. And, and sometimes it is a fight um, when, you, when you're working with, um, in some cases, more urban lawmakers. We've got to make sure that they understand the importance of things like uh, crop insurance and um, the CCC and, and making sure that we're doing right by the folks sitting around this, uh, this room here today. But uh, thank you for having me, Vanessa. I appreciate yes, it. We really appreciate you being here. Kate Jennings with us from your staff does an excellent job as well. And observing today, we have Grace Simpson from Monmouth College Environmental Studies. She wanted to have an opportunity uh, to work in this industry uh, later on down the road. So nice to have her here. want to welcome in uh, Rob Elliott, past president of the Illinois Corn Growers Association, longtime farmer and local business owner. Thank you for being here, Rob. Thank you again, Vanessa, for allowing me to be part of this group, and uh, thank you as well to the Congresswoman for being here with us today. I hope she knows what she's dove into here today and can <laughs> accept the, the challenge in front of her. So, yeah, thank you a million. And Jake Armstrong with us, our president with the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau. It's National Ag Week. Jake, uh, also local business owner and farmer, thank you for being here and all that the Farm Bureau does for our local farmers. Yes, we're happy to be here, happy to re represent the Farm Bureau, and excited to be a part of this conversation. Jim Lighting is also with us with Big River Resources, our CEO and president. Jim, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Vanessa. Big River is, uh, as everyone knows, uh, appreciates the support of the ag community and uh, we uh, always love to, to participate in uh, your programs and your round tables as to where ag is going. Okay. And a uh, longtime member, uh, of course, want to say hello to the Deffenbaugh family this morning who always supported this program in honor of Ray Deffenbaugh, longtime member. I think, Rob, you've got to fill the shoes today with the good jokes. Got it. 
Nick Anderson with us, Illinois Livestock Development Group. Nick, thanks for making the trip over. Thanks, Vanessa, and thanks, uh, Brian and Chris, for being hosts of this. And years and years of support uh, throughout the years. I, I remember participating in the years past. Very crucial to have this discussion for everybody. And from Illinois livestock farmers around the state, uh, a lot of challenges ahead of us, and hopefully we'll get into those today. But uh, thanks for having us. And, and remember, uh, without a farmer, you don't eat. So it's getting to be Easter season with Easter hams. And, and even though the egg set is up in, in the world, uh, we're going to have to consume some of those eggs. And maybe Chris and I will have to color some eggs for Easter before we leave. <laughs> okay, thank you, Dick. Ron Moore with us, American uh, Soybean Association chairman, a local farmer as well, Illinois Farm Families. Uh, thank you, Ron, for being here. Well, thanks, Vanessa, and, and thanks to our sponsors and the congresswoman for being here. It's a, we've had several interactions over the last couple weeks, so it's good to hear to see you again. Thanks, Ron. And finally, I do want to uh, dedicate these Ag Roundtables to longtime Ag broadcaster at WRAM. Mr. Tom Peterson passed away recently, and I uh, want to thank uh, his family, everything he did for agriculture locally. He was uh, the voice you heard for, for two decades. He is the original author and creator of the Ag Roundtables with Les Allen from Midwest Bank. And so uh, thanks to his uh, shining light uh, for agriculture, we're able to keep these uh, going. So in honor of his legacy, uh, we dedicate these to uh, Tom Peterson. May he rest in peace. I'm going to turn things over to Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. Rob Elliott is on deck uh, to begin the program. Sherry, it's all yours. All right. Well, again, Vanessa, thank you very much. Um, if, if I may, I'd like to start talking a little bit about what just came out of the American Rescue Plan. Um, I, I, let's start there and, um, and then get into whatever topics uh, anybody wants to talk about. Um, and then just yesterday, what happened with the announcement out of the USDA and the Pandemic Assistance for Producers Initiative, which I think is, is also worth, worth covering. So um, as far as um, CFAP goes, um, we've got new avenues for relief for our producers using money allocated by Congress and the American Rescue Plan. So starting April 5th, um, we've got a new and modified CFAP application program, which I think is important. Um, that will be accepted now for 60 days. And um, if, if you need additional CFAP assistance, um, that will be available for eligible crops such as corn, uh, soybeans, sorghum, wheat, and others. Um, the announcement also included $6 billion for new programs to provide, to provide relief for our biofuel producers, producers who had to euthanize livestock or poultry, and for our dairy farmers. So um, really, really proud that we passed this really transformative package. It was critically important. Um, and happy to, to talk about that. Uh, now, what's going to, to come up next as far as Congress goes? Our, we'll turn our attention now to infrastructure. Know that's also very important to the folks sitting around the table today. Um, what we anticipate seeing there is probably the biggest and the most robust infrastructure package in the history of our nation. It's something that will be needed post-pandemic as we uh, look to rebuild our country. And uh, that will be everything from roads and bridges, locks and dams, levees, the things that are very important to our part of the country. And uh, so what, what I would love to be able to take away from this today is what, what, what should we consider as we look at this next infrastructure package? What should we consider as we, we're going to start gearing up for hearings um, in the next 12 months 
to get ready for the 2023 farm bill, the next farm bill. And so um, I, I know I always hear that, hey, don't mess with crop insurance. Um, that uh, That's what I've heard for, this will be my third farm bill, by the way, that I've been involved with negotiating. So what I'd love to hear from you today is what do we need to consider as far as that goes? What do we need to consider for the next infrastructure package? What do I need to consider ser serving on the Ag Committee and now chairing the General Farm Commodities and Risk Management Subcommittee? So um, I'm, I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about that. But let me start out with a, with a question um, about how COVID has impacted your operations. Um, how have federal relief efforts been helpful in keeping your businesses afloat? Um, and where should we consider future uh, federal relief and, and get that in a better place? So I'd, I'd like to just throw out that question. Um, and then again, the overview of COVID relief and infrastructure as we move forward. Chris, it makes sense for you because you were at the bank where taking care of loaning out the, the payroll protection programs to both farmers and local businesses. Yes. Uh, wow, it's just been a, a wild ride, I would say. Um, thinking back to when the first program came out um, last year and we were all scrambling trying to get on the SBA's platform, it was probably some of the most stressful days I've had in my banking career. And then as those got to be worked out and people think they figure stuff out um, with the platforms and, and pretty soon it was it was much different a much different experience so we uh, we were able to uh, process 250 loans the first round for about 17 million dollars out of just our bank um, we also worked with some other lenders early on in the process because we were all struggling with how to get the system to work so it was interesting to see some local cooperation on just getting people taken care of um, was good. This time around, uh, we've processed, uh, we've submitted 360 applications, which was surprising to me that it actually went up. We actually thought that there'd be less this time around. Um, and they keep adjusting the rules a little bit, which brings more opportunity into play. Uh, that's been interesting. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been really a, a lifesaver for some businesses. Um, the farmers have really taken advantage of it. Um, they, they, did, they did the rule change on the Schedule F, where you're allowed to go to the uh, gross revenue versus net, and, and with a cap of 100,000, that was a real game changer for a lot of people. We had a lot of people. Uh, the first round, unfortunately, um, the people that need it most, the farmers that need it most, all right they may not have had any schedule f income and so we had it they, they didn't qualify and that was very disappointing for them um with the new program that's changed and and so we've had a, a lot more people come back um since that's been changed and and again it's just been it's it's just been kind of hard to imagine how they you could ramp that up so fast and get all that money out so quickly um also, one last comment about the whole thing, which I still don't understand from 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 the banking side of it, is is that um, and all 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 banks are kind of in the same boat. But just to give you some perspective, um, we typically, if our bank were to grow three to four percent a year, that would be really good growth for our area, unless we would do an acquisition. Um, in January of 2019, or excuse me, in January of 2020. We were uh, total 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 assets of about 525 million, and we've grown to 625 million in total assets, and that's all being driven by the deposit side. 
Um, and some of that is some new customers of ours, some larger customers, but I, I, I'm estimating about 70, or we're estimating about 70 million of that is tied to some sort of stimulus. And so uh, one thing that I'm, we're watching real closely is the, uh, the Fed and the interest rates um, because I know that a lot of the money is being spent right now, the, but there's, there's still a lot of money that hasn't been spent yet. And, and I think until we really, and you know, maybe this spring when we really start coming out of COVID bit by bit, we're gonna see that really start to happen. But it's just been very interesting to me. And, and I have a lot of conversations with the Chicago Fed and they talk to bankers all throughout their district. And it's kind of the same story. So there's, there's a lot of money in the banks and I don't know when that starts to you know, really have an impact, but it, eventually it's going to and this economy could, could really heat up. Well, I, I mean, just to, in response to that, Chris, we're, the, the Fed's predicting um, pretty healthy growth over the next year. And um, I, I think the, the whole idea, the American Rescue Plan is a stimulus plan. It's, it's called the American Rescue Plan for a reason because we're living through a, you know, once in a century pandemic that has taken a tremendous um, economic toll on our country. But the whole idea of $1.9 trillion plan is to get things going again. The whole idea of Congress and the Biden administration talking about an infrastructure plan that could, could total $3 trillion dollars is because we've got a we're gonna have to build back our country and as, as you know just driving around um, and this is critical for every all of you sitting around the table you can, we've got to be able to get um, commodities to market and that that's been our competitive advantage as a nation we can get our goods to market uh, typically uh, it, you know with with reasonable pricing attached to that are uh, the uh, uh, the countries that we are competing with now have invested in their infrastructure at a much better, faster rate than we have over the last, um, actually, couple generations. So um, we've we've got to get things going again. But I, I think we're going to see some tremendous growth going forward. And I, 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 but I'd be curious as to what you're all seeing, um, and what your predictions are as well from an ag perspective. Nick, from the Illinois Livestock Development, uh, you can probably talk a lot about how COVID affected our local farmers and the, the scary thought of euthanization. Right, and uh, in Illinois, uh, we avoided that somewhat just because of uh, the packing industry and some of the uh, you know, things that were in place with our infrastructure. I guess the biggest impact was getting animals marketed on a timely fashion. And we saw it in the cattle business on some down days and heavy cattle and what you do with them. I think we came through that fairly well. Uh, the pork industry in Illinois, there was some, we, we had ability to maybe euthanize smaller, lighter pigs or put farrowings off and things like that. But in other states, it was probably a little more impactful on the pork side when you look at pork concentration through Minnesota and Iowa, even though it did affect us. And, and the big fear, and I think we've kind of came, come through and found some new ways to operate, but in the packing industry, the risk was greater than anybody knew. They were fairly quick to implement strategies to do that. However, when you think about capacity or efficiency, whether it's on the farm or at a packing plant, when you mess with that line speed or hours that it takes to do that, 
that's a long-term grind into the marketplace of trying to recover from that or bringing that back up. And fortunately, the demand for our uh, protein products in the meat business stayed steady. And I think our exports and some of those things helped relieve that as long as we could get them into that chain and system to do it. We had plenty of supply. And there's, and I know we talked at our last round table with, uh, you know, maybe a lack of packing capacity uh, for smaller producers and there's pent-up demand for local processing. Now that's a percentage of the market that you know, is fairly small, but there's been a renewed interest in that avenue and, we, and it's just not there. We've kind of gone away from the local packers and part of it was regulation, part of it was profitability, but this showed us that there are these gaps in that system. Now we have full faith in our, our uh, meat chain supply side as long as it has an opportunity to work and I I would say hats off to the plant here in Monmouth and around the state that really stood up now it was it was pretty tense for a while and I know there was a lot of rhetoric that went out there and, and it was just an emotional type of thing but I think we fairly recovered however I, I think we're going to learn a lot from this in the future on where these supply chains as we fill that and whether it's the livestock business or e I, even the grain side of things and what I worry about you know, you think about exports and what's happening in Brazil with their crop and the pandemic that's getting bigger there. I see the local news that has a lot of, you know, what's U.S. status, but my fear is in our world market of exports through the meat business and grains, I think the problem is probably much bigger out there. We don't see it on the nightly news as much, but I think that tail in those foreign markets, even though it's an opportunity for us, I'm not sure they're recovering, but it's going to impact supply flow uh, and who's, how's the world going to rely on getting their protein source, whether it's through grain or meat. So it's a little unknown and it's probably a bigger thought process than I can put out today, but I think is if we can take what we've learned this and share that with other communities and other wor uh, you know parts of the world, we can get through this. But uh, you know, politically or uh, you know, Sherry's worked with that stuff on export and things like that. And you know, talking to another country is different than talking to our own United States people to conform. And and that's a problem. Other than right now, I, I believe that exports have kind of saved us because we've had a place to go with that product. And and we'll we'll recover somewhat, but we're in a new era of how we're going to produce produce protein and also consume it and some awareness that uh, we'll take forward and hopefully learn from it. And Jim Lighting, of course, last year you and I spoke about a month from today uh, in regard to nobody was driving and the, the challenges that faced for ethanol, but the rebound seemed to be nice as we talked through the year. But more importantly, and with, with Congresswoman Bustos here today, uh, the, the seat that you want at the table for ethanol and climate change is also a major part of your discussions. Very much so, Vanessa. Uh, 2020, uh, relative to the ethanol industry, was probably the most difficult year we've seen in, uh, really, since I've been in the business 16 years. Um, a year ago, we saw driving demand uh, fall by 45% in the April-May period, um, <clears throat> taking plants down. We had two plants that were down uh, for the bulk of May, uh, resuming production in June. But as an industry, we still have plants offline. Uh, and production is resuming. Uh, fortunately, we are seeing a return uh, as what I, I term people are COVID tired. 
and uh, cabin fever. Uh, we are, are seeing a, a robust return on fuel demand, which is helping our industry. Uh, the industry uh, appreciates the efforts. Uh, the relief has provided PPP funds. There's been uh, a little bit of direct relief from the state of Iowa and the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and now uh, with the allocation that Congress specified uh, in the, the last relief package to help support those uh, in the industry that have struggled through uh, that lower demand period. And then looking forward, as you indicated, uh, the renewed emphasis on climate change, carbon intensity, uh, I think is going to provide an opportunity uh, for the industry. Uh, there's a lot of focus on electric vehicles and uh, others. The, the timeline, uh, if you look at what's being presented, uh, pushes that out uh, really over 15 to 20 years as the infrastructure gets developed uh, and as things are moving on. I think the EIA is indicating 2050 will still be if everything develops, 80% of 80% uh, of uh, the vehicles that continue to be liquid uh, carb or liquid vehicles, fuel vehicles. So the ethanol industry uh, is being recognized today uh, as a fuel that's 46% less carbon intensive than than fossil fuels and being part of the solution as we address climate change and as we address um, lowering our carbon status. There's some current programs looking at carbon sequestration. As you go through it, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things kind of hanging out here in limbo today that is seeking direction. And as we go through the next year or two, uh, whether it be carbon sequestration, how we improve uh, reducing our carbon intensity as a fuel, um, we think there's a bright future for ethanol as part of that solution. And uh, the good news with ethanol, we're available, we're here now, and as you know, that supports the entire ag community. Uh, with our feedstock being corn, our products uh, flowing right into livestock production. Um, it's it's uh, an opportunity, in my opinion, for rural communities and the ag communities, and we greatly appreciate the support we've seen as we've gone through this significant reduction in demand and, and the, the margin destruction that came with it. Currently, we are seeing that 2021 is very optimistic, uh, and uh, the economics have improved uh, for the industry as a whole. We're not yet totally back to full production, but I would anticipate as we roll through 2021 and, and move forward into 2022 with vaccinations and a, a return to hopefully the norm, uh, our business and the support that it provides for agriculture and the opportunities for um, helping improve air quality and reducing carbon intensity uh, will uh, 
will come into play. Thank you, Jim. Congresswoman Bustos, please enlighten us. Uh, you guys talk about climate change. You are the author of your own legislation that you've been able to, to share with input from the farmers, please. Yeah, and, and Jim, I'm I'm happy to hear your optimism for 2021, and I'm I'm optimistic as well. I I think that uh, let let's tie this in maybe a little bit to the General Motors announcement of going to this all electric uh, fleet by tw uh, 2035. Look, that's I I. I, I I think we've got a great opportunity to make sure that we can do all we can to help biofuels between now and then, and then look at uh, you know the future beyond that. Um, we've got a piece of legislation, and, and I've talked with most of you sitting around the table about this, but it's called the Rural Green Partnership. And uh, just as as quick background on it, when there were there, there was uh, there were legislative proposals that were coming out um, from coastal um, folks, why don't I just word it that way, coastal folks who probably didn't have a deep understanding about our part of the country, about the heartland, about the Midwest, about an, an ag-driven economy. And so we wrote our own piece of legislation called the Rural Green Partnership that looks at things like biofuels, cover crops, carbon capture, precision agriculture, and really it's written through a lens of, of, of agriculture and of rural America. But um, we've also got a piece of legislation that's called the uh, Next Generation Fuels Act uh, that looks at high octane, low carbon fuel. And um, that is where, uh, that's where biofuels come to play, uh, ethanol comes to play. And, um, but we want to make sure that we are doing everything we can uh, legislatively to make sure that we're helping you succeed. And we, we see that as, as our job and um, we'll keep pushing for that. And, um, I, but I, I feel the same way. I think we've got great opportunity ahead in 2021 and 2022 and hopefully beyond. I do want to share and thank you because you've been uh, very supportive and uh, instrumental in bringing those bills about and um, supporting agriculture as a whole and, and biofuels as part of that solution and saying, hey, we're here, we're here now. We're not 15 years down the road, we're not 20 years down the road. Let's look at what tools we have today. Absolutely. Rob Elliott. Let me let me follow up to those comments, uh, Jim, and kudos to the Congresswoman for her leadership out in our nation's capital on the Rural Green Partnership and the Next Generation Fuels Act. Those are pretty critical to our future. As we've talked before, this whole biofuels industry is about 30% of our corn market and pretty good percentage of our soybean market as well. And uh, without that liquid fuel component here in the near future, uh, Jake's not going to have very many new customers come into his place of business over there because we will have a hard time existing in the corn and soybean commodity market without those markets as part of it. We certainly need to be looking at new ones, but I think from an ag perspective with such a huge emphasis on the whole climate thing right now and the transition to electric vehicles don't don't mean to denigrate electric vehicles whatsoever it good future for it all that kind of thing the problem is we're not all operating with a level playing field here when it comes to measurement of what we can do and by that I mean uh, the electric vehicle uh, 
is the the emissions is measured at the tailpipe well it doesn't have a tailpipe so it gets a zero emissions my point is that if you think back through the the spectrum of things that took took place to get that battery made to generate that electricity to the windmills and solar farms that are being put up and taken prime farmland out of production here in Warren County there there is a land use change that goes with electricity and there is a emissions aspect that goes with electricity can't even say it electricity that seems to be overlooked and as Jim mentioned that 46 to 50 percent uh, lesser emissions from the ethanol world as opposed to uh, traditional gasoline that's the component that we probably are not utilizing to the level that we could the congresswoman's future fuels act talks about the need to put that in motion further uh, with a low carbon and high octane being the piece of that We've talked about it a long time, but never really got this thing in motion over the last several years. Automakers have had the capability to build a high compression, small volume engine with hugely uh, better gas mileage than what we've got today with significantly less emissions to go with it, but have never been given that signal that says, you know it's coming you can count on it build an engine and a new car off of that so hopefully this next generation fuels act puts some of that in motion that we've got a little bit longer window of time for uh, renewable fuels to be part of that uh, solution so long-winded sorry Rob I actually have a follow-up question on the on the engine that you were just referring to um, I, I feel like I need to do a little studying up on that, but what is the what are the prospects of of that going anywhere? I, I think all it takes is the signal like that high octane standard to be a reality, and those folks are they could probably have that on the market. I'm going to guess Jim in four or five years. Technology's there. Yeah. you build a small engine, uh, high compression. Uh, turbocharged if you have the uh, if you have the high octane which is an anti-knock um, the technology's there they so we kind of need an Elon Musk of rural America to develop this and mass produce it in some respects uh, the f-150 I drove here today has a, a a 2.7 turbocharged engine in it which the pickup trucks the farmers would would have never had that small of an engine in that vehicle and I get as good a mileage with a four-wheel drive pickup today that you would get with an SUV now that can be improved upon if you have the higher octane fuel and they can take that technology to the next levels and when you do that you reduce carbon intensity of miles driven and the octane provided uh, by ethanol uh, being 111 octane uh, feeds right back into agriculture so you're reducing the carbon intensity of miles driven uh, by utilizing a lower 
octane or a lower carbon intensive fuel, less of that fuel and supporting agriculture at the same time. Clean air. There's Less been an organization way. called the Ag Auto Alliance that included uh, uh, folks like GM uh, Chrysler Ford, as well as corn growers, John Deere, Monsanto in the past, some of those groups. They've been meeting for a half dozen years, and they've been to the place that said, we can make this engine happen. We just have, they didn't have the EPA capability of using that fuel level that included enough octane, which would require 30 or 35 percent, let's say, ballpark ethanol content to get there. So, so would you say the Next Generation Fuels Act really needs to become law in order for that really to take off? Could be, or the or the signal sent that it's coming, uh, design and build accordingly. You've got a known factor. Mm -hmm. Businesses operate on certainty, and that's what they need. More incentive to get going on this. You have to have yeah. an assurance that the fuel is going to be there. Yeah. The fuel has to be there for the auto to build the engine uh, for the consumer to use the fuel. It's, it's, it's really very disappointing to think that we haven't made the progress that I was talking about because I, I listened to, uh, attended the annual meeting for Big River on Wednesday afternoon um, virtually and Jeff, um, Cooper with the Renewable Fuels Association. Yes, and and so it's really when you listen to this, when you listen to him or you listen to Jim talk um, about what's going on there, it's like it seems like it's a no-brainer that there's a there's this big gap between where we're at now and where we want to be with electric vehicles that really could be we we could do so much more immediately for clean air. In carbon emissions, if we just if this got engaged and got ramped up sooner, to where just like Jim said, if you can build the engines to match the fuel initiative, it's I just don't understand how where the argument against it is. It doesn't seem to be any viable argument against it from anybody. It's I don't, called I, big oil. Yeah. That's just big oil. <laughs> there there yes. are people with deep pockets. Yes, don't yeah. want it that is called big happen. oil. Yes, and, yeah. and yes. I guess that's where I'm coming from when I talk about level of playing field. So for electric vehicles, again, not denigrate them. But however, uh, Elon Musk gets about a $35,000 cafe credit for every car that he sells that somebody else has to buy to, to uh, put up against the cafe standard for a pickup truck, let's say. Uh, are we going to give away electricity on every motel parking lot and, uh, and the government provide that electricity for free at the expense of all the convenience stores? There are just so many components here that skew the the electric piece of it versus what we can already do with existing infrastructure with our fuel pumps and the like that could go right there tomorrow. You know, I call our rural green partnership kind of an evergreen piece of, uh, of policy. And I, it seems to me that we've got to look from a policy perspective more, how do we make this happen? If, if, the, if the technology is there, how do you turn that into something that can be mass produced, can be marketed? Um, because that's going to be the answer, uh, at least between now and two uh, 2035, Chris, to your point, is we're, we're ready for the here and now with, with ethanol, with biofuels, to make sure that uh, we can, at, at minimum, uh, be here to answer that, that the green question that is, I, I feel like the green question is underlying policy throughout Washington, D.C. right now, whether we're looking at infrastructure, 
um, whether we're talking about um, even getting out of this pandemic, everything has got kind of this green underlying um, foundation. So I, I really think there are a lot of opportunities, but I think we have to evolve legislatively and make this more top of mind, um, not just with the Next Generation Fuels Act, but even looking at our Rural Green Partnership and how do we kind of um, increase this dialogue about the technology that's out there and how we get that. Um, uh, again, we're, we're talking about Elon Musk. Who's that person who we want to attach to this technology? I'd rather use Henry Ford than Elon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We need a Henry Ford back in the Midwest. Yeah. But that's where I guess we lean on you, Congresswoman, that uh, you get it and uh, the bulk of your counterparts don't. And electricity gets the automatic sympathetic vote. Yes. And if you can help others understand the value we can bring nearly immediately to the party and help with the climate picture, uh, we're ready to do that. So, Vanessa, uh, and these are great discussions. And, and from Sherry's standpoint, hopefully you can be our messenger back to those colleagues that don't understand the Midwest. And all this is fine and good, but when we think about U.S. agriculture and the efficiency and how good we are at what we do, we really have to be careful. And even though we want, if, if I'm against green energy or it's not good for us, typically we invest things that return back to our operations. So that's got to come first. However, when we put those barriers in place, we're in a world market. And if the rest of the world doesn't play the same game we do and we have increased cost and increased burdens, we lose our place in that marketplace because we can't be profitable. The research that's been done over the years, and actually there, we just scratched the surface on those efficiencies and we look at the biodiesel side, and just by firing, putting the firing pin in a different position than we did on regular oil gives us a different efficiency number and a combustion that makes that such a great product, but I'm not sure the rest of the world hears that. They hear the big oil or whatever it might be. And the challenge is to transition to green, if that's the way we're gonna go, electricity has to be produced. And just because I can plug it into an outlet doesn't make me green because I'm using electricity. There's, I live in a rural area that relies on rural electric that still is paying for a coal-fired plant. And even though I don't like my costs of that, but as a consumer, and rural America doesn't have that population voice to tell that story, but we're dependent on that. And if we have to reinvest in rural America in ele different electricity, whether it's wind or solar or whatever, that's gonna impact us, and there's a cost of implementing that. That the burden has to go somewhere. And if, if the consumer market can pay for it, and that's, that's sort of what we are faced with with ag products, we're going to try to get the highest price for the product that we have, as long as there aren't barriers there that prohibit us from them getting it from somewhere else. So if, if you can take that message that uh, any burden you put back on us, whether it's great and, and we need to do it, we're in this world market that if, if we damage that, and it can happen overnight, that we're not going to be in a, in a marketplace that we can use our we're the most efficient uh, ag-producing country in the world. Nobody can touch us, uh, and we're, we strive to do that, mostly because it's driven by we've got to be efficient and profitable, but we're in a competition where the rules aren't the same, and we really have to be aware of that, whether it's crops or livestock, environmental issues, all those types of things come into play. So hopefully that message will go with when we develop these, these projects that I think are good for us, but uh, be cautious. Ron? Sure. <clears throat> I've 
wish I could have said everything that has been said here as well as you guys all said it, but I can't. So I would suggest that Vanessa make a copy of this for Congressman Bustos to take back as a podcast to her colleagues because this is great information that not everybody on the coast understands or even knows about. So that's great conversation. If if I may, can we go back to your one of your questions about how the COVID has affected our operations? Please. Um, we feed cattle, and it. I luckily sold my fat cattle about three weeks before the it was declared a pandemic, and so it didn't affect the market on the cattle that I had sold. But I have lots of friends in the cattle feeding business who had cattle for sale in late March and April of last year, devastated their markets. Went from $1.12 down to 90 cents a pound. Um, devastated them. And so, one of the things I keep thinking about is back, if you go back to when the trade war with China was developed, my argument was government intervention into our markets um, was the responsibility at that at the trade war with the government. Government needs to come up with a solution, either ending the trade war or mitigating those circumstances. The trade mitigation program that the Trump administration rolled out for a couple of years was very beneficial to keeping those folks um, who had lost income because of the trade, um, keeping them in business. And then the COVID relief packages that Congress and you voted on to, to supply not only to agriculture but to other aspects of the U.S. economy was critically important to keeping us afloat until things turned around. I would say they've turned around. We've got higher markets for most of our commodities, but I don't think we're, I, I know we're not out of the woods yet. And so government solutions have been helpful to many of our farming operations, and I'm thankful that you've been part of getting us those solutions. Um, yeah, well, look, I, I think we've got a, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done as far as educating my colleagues out in, um, in Washington. It's, <laughs> you know, everybody has their own priorities and we all come from different areas. There's five, 435 of us. And, um, you know, I, I, this is actually, I don't, if, if we want to talk politics for a second, um, I, I'm now one of only three Democrats in the entire um, U.S. House of Representatives. We have 222 Democrats right now. There's only three who come from a district that Donald Trump won in 2016 and 2020, um, where, and the other, the other one's Ron Kind out of Wisconsin and uh, Matt Cartwright out of Pennsylvania, that we were, we were there in 2016, we're there in 2020, and, uh, you know, we've survived just unbelievably interesting political dynamics. But um, so we all come from different places. I do see it as, as among my responsibilities to make sure that uh, we inform uh, the, the colleagues who I work with to help us bring about good policy. And what we're talking about this morning, I, this is good policy. This is good policy, and um, so I see that as among my responsibilities. I do think from a trade perspective, we ought to talk about trade a little bit too, maybe this morning, but um, you know, we, we have to expand our markets. We, um, um, along with, with folks from the Corn Growers and the Soybean Association, Rodney Davis, a Republican out of uh, Taylorville, 
and I, uh, we, we went on a bipartisan agricultural trade mission to Cuba. We thought that there were some good opportunities to do, um, have additional trade opportunities with Cuba. Um, and then I flew down after that with President Obama um, to look for those opportunities. I'm, I'm hoping we can get back to that again. That's a $2 billion a year trade opportunity for in agriculture with, with a, a country that's 90 miles off our shore. Um, I, I'm not sure what's going to happen with China going forward. It just seems like from one day to the next we don't know. Um, we're, I, I, you guys maybe can weigh in on this. I think we're in a pretty good place now with the um, uh, Canada-Mexico trade agreement. Um, I think we're in, a, we're, we're in pretty good shape with Mexico and Canada now as far as trade goes. I believe so. But, um, you know, what, the other opportunities are out there. What do I need to know uh, from a trade perspective of how we can get things in the best place possible for our, for our family farmers? So glad you brought up the trade issue because there's there's two programs that some of the farms um, foreign it's USDA it's a foreign ag service sorry mm -hmm. um, the market facilitation program and the and the foreign market development programs they've been capped at not enough money I don't know the can't quote you the number but the American Soybean Association is suggesting that doubling of those funds because as you said we don't know for sure what we're gonna get out of China yeah and as we all of agriculture whether it's there I think there's like 50 different commodities that get funds from those two programs we use those funds to talk about the benefits of buying ag products from the United States versus our competitors around the world. And so those funds can be used to open up new markets so we aren't completely relying on one market for 30% of our soybean production in the United States. I've always argued that what happens if we get into a geopolitical spat with China and they stop buying our soybeans? Well, we did. It was a geopolitical spat. They stopped buying our soybeans and we lost $3 in the soybean market because of that. So those kind of programs that we can use to help promote U.S. agricultural products overseas are critically important. Okay. Rob? I would tag on and go back to one of your earlier questions. Sorry to be jumping around here, but I'd like to go back to infrastructure because I think it plays quite a place with trade, particularly as it relates to your district where the Illinois and Mississippi rivers are so critical. So hopefully it, it, it's obvious that roads and bridges get a sympathetic vote when you bounce through the potholes that we've got out there pretty regularly <laughs> anymore. But that lock and dam and yeah. inland waterways probably is not one that falls high on the radar of many of your urban uh, counterparts. So I, I guess hopefully this go around, we've been keeping our fingers crossed for a long time, that we get that uh, financial support to go through those lock and dam upgrades that uh, we so so terribly need to yep. be competitive to do the things that Ron's talking about. So we're working on that right now, Rob. Uh, the NESP, you know, navigational ecosystem sustainability program. We're working on that right now. We we got the. Um, the legislation through to uh, move on that, but we didn't have the funding associated with it. We're working as we speak on getting the funding behind that. 
our congressional district, uh, kind of an interesting fact, has more locks and dams in it than any congressional district in the country. And that's mostly because our western border is the Mississippi River, but we also have the Illinois running through the southern part of our congressional district. So, um, so when you say it's maybe not top of mind, uh, maybe not for a lot of people, it certainly is for us. And so our goal is to get funding behind that. Um, obviously, the Army Corps of Engineers, um, they're, they're ready to go. They just need the money to, to support that. So we're on it. Uh, I hope we're successful here in the coming couple years. Let's hope it makes it this go around. It, it needs to. It needs to. This obviously the the locks and dam system um, was uh, it came about during it was it's depression era from the from the 1930s and and it's outlived actually it's what it should have outlived and you know visiting there where you see the coffee cans collecting oil that's dripping down from the machinery it's uh, it, you know held up by a coat hanger it's like <laughs> all right you know what this this has been um, rigged together by people who are, are really smart but we, we've got to make sure that the technology um, keeps up we've got to go from the 600 feet to the 1200 feet that that would th that's the single best thing that we could do in our locks and dam system so you don't have to decouple as they're as they're locking through Jake I mean, you guys hit the nail on the head right there. I was going to comment on the locks and dam as well. It's our biggest competitive advantage that we have. Not only do we raise a great product, but we can get it to market quickly. Like you said, Congresswoman, expanding those locks and dams so we can not uncouple and get bigger barges through. I mean, you all nailed it. So. And Brian Manahan, anything you'd like to add as you've heard the discussion this morning? Yeah, it's been great to listen to this uh, dialogue here. And um, really a question for Congresswoman, if, if I may. Uh, we talk about pandemic assistance, which is so needed in today's you know, economy and the funding support to farmers. As you look ahead, um, you know, months to come or down the road, maybe a year or two, where do you see that going as far as increased assistance? Uh, are there other avenues that that's going to be able to help provide support to the local farming community? Just curious to get your, your take on that, please. I, I don't know if there will be appetite to have yet another rescue plan. I mean, this was our, our third that actually we passed and was signed into law. We actually passed a couple others that were stalled uh, in 2020. But, uh, you know, if you look at the original CARES package, um, I, I still remember uh, leaving the, the House floor and um, after voting for that. And a, a, a member of the Washington Press Corps asked me what was coming next. And I'm like, we just passed the biggest rescue plan in the history of our nation, and you're already asking me what's coming next. Well, lo and behold, we needed to do more. And uh, so then it took till the end of the year to uh, come up with uh, some more relief, and then now um, the American Rescue Plan, um, which, by the way, is the second biggest relief package in the history of our nation. Um, so look, the, the money in that is actually designed to go through December, the end of 2024. So if you look at the, uh, the funding that's going to counties and to towns, um, what I find interesting about that is um, that was something that we had talked about in the previous packages but didn't get through until this latest American Rescue Plan. Um, I ran into um, somebody from, I, I won't name names, but it was from one of the 14 counties that I represent. Um, and the person was complaining about the, the size of the package, and we've heard some of that, and um, w called it a liberal um, plan. 
And I said, you know, you don't have to accept that money. And um, immediately the person said, oh, no, 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 we're going we're gonna <laughs> to take, take it. But, but I just share that. I mean, it, it's, it is a huge plan. And there is, um, but it is designed to be a stimulus and to help um, those, whether it's farmers or small businesses um, or local government or county government or state government, it is designed to help us get past this terrible, terrible time in our um, in our nation, and um, I hope it's enough to get us on our feet. I hope it's enough to the point that Chris made earlier about uh, growing the economy. I, I we're going to see we're going to see growth in our economy, and I think it's going to be good. Um, and but and we but we need to then have this plan to rebuild. That's why we're talking about the biggest infrastructure package in the history of our nation. So I hope that that when we're when this is all said and done, that we will be judged as as doing the right thing to think big for our nation, and that that we see the we see economic growth that's going to be great for our family farmers. That's going to be great for our small businesses. That's going to be great for our towns. Um, all around, not just this congressional district, not just throughout the state of Illinois, but for our nation. Um, Vanessa, you've heard me throw out these stats about our congressional district um, probably many times, but I always like to say 85% of the towns in this congressional district are 5,000 people or fewer. 60% are 1,000 people or fewer. That's, that is um, the kind of congressional district and the kind of region that we want to make sure that we can survive this and um, and then actually thrive when we're on the other end of this. So that's really what this policy has all been about and that's why I've been supportive of it. We have uh, just about five minutes left. Kate Jennings doing a great job of keeping me informed. Uh, so far, great discussion, uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos. I want to give the guys a real quick chance just if there's anything else they want to get uh, in, into you know your mind. I can start right here with Ron before you have to leave. Sure. Um, thank you, Vanessa. I know I've asked you this question here a couple of weeks ago, but have you heard any more about the Biden tax plan? You've talked about the $1.9 trillion and a potential $3 trillion infrastructure, which is great to stimulus, but I've heard in the national media that how is it going to get paid for? And I don't know if you have any more information. I, I can tell you what some of um, President Biden has put out there is they're uh, looking at um, corporate tax rates that were dropped significantly under the Trump administration. Um, I think that actually they were dropped to a level that even surprised those in corporate America. Um, I think that is part of what uh, President Biden is taking a look at. I, let, let me address this from a more of a local level. What we're hearing as we talk with our farm bureaus and, and family farmers throughout our region, there's real concern about the stepped up basis. Um, I, am, I understand the concern about that. Um, I'm, I will keep that in mind as, as the what's going to happen to taxes as, as that debate continues. That's probably the number one question I get from a, from a tax perspective. Keep in mind under the, uh, the tax plan that passed during the Trump administration, 83% um, 80, of the tax benefits, benefits went to the top 1% of the earners in our country and I, I think that I'm uh, President Biden will probably take a look at at that as well uh, but those negotiations have not begun 
but I'm so I'm just going I'm, I'm sharing this with you as far as what's out there in the public sphere of what I've heard okay thank you thanks Ryan Nick anything from uh, livestock yeah and I think I mentioned that really it's a broader issue of uh, careful what we ask for and anything we impose on folks is going to have a ramification and as I sit around the room uh, all of us have a farm background and I'll pick on Ron and Rob the average age of the farmer is not getting younger and when we talk about so why'd you pick on those two well, because, because, the, because our listeners can't see them uh, but it's a it's a it's becoming a crisis to transfer our farm assets and grow the next generation of farmers for a lot of different reasons but when when a farmer plans to plant a field and make those plans for the future and it's a long-term plan we have rules that we put in place so we can operate and, and return and when the rules get changed whether it's in a farm program or a tax base or inheritance tax and we've already made all these plans and all of a sudden the burden comes back on top of us it stops that next generation from coming forward and I know you realize that but I don't know that the rest of the world when we look at small communities and small businesses not just farming businesses that people don't think they're corporate but the tax benefits that were established probably the best year we've had in agriculture for tax relief or benefits because farming operations are bigger they're not the small 40 50 acre thing even though those still still exist but it's a it's a business that has a burden there and and hopefully if you can portray that to your colleagues uh, in all aspects of agriculture, the inheritance tax, and if we put plans in place a year that are going to last us for a generation and somebody changes them to the detriment of us, it really causes challenge to keep this farming community the way we want it to be. We do have to progress in the future, but it, it's a burden that sometimes is unseen and there's a lot of catastrophe that doesn't get reported that people are out of business and, and it's unfortunate and I've got family members and friends that the same thing have happened to because they, they could not compete in that world and there's personal choices too of course but uh, please keep that in mind I know you do. Yeah. I would agree Thank on you, the Nick. inheritance tax thing if you're young and have good hair like Jake and I <laughs> uh, then, then, then that inheritance tax thing is a, is a pretty big deal and it's really the one that doesn't make any sense so Okay, thank you, Nick. Jim? Um, keep it short and sweet, fair market access. Whether it's domestic or whether it's uh, exports, uh, Brazil's 20% tariff on ethanol is a prime example. They come into our market and yet we're punished going into their market. China, as we come out the tail end of the tariffs on uh, DDG and hopefully can remove the one on ethanol. Uh, and then domestically EPA regulations, whether it be E15, whether it be infrastructure uh, for higher blends. Uh, so, but I, I thank you because you're addressing those issues and I thank you for your support. And Vanessa, I thank you for the opportunity uh, to join this group. Of course. Jake Armstrong? 
also try and keep it short uh, just wanted to reiterate the taxes and the infrastructures those were the two big things on my list I wanted to mention um, those guys have done an excellent job trying to articulate it to you I'm not going to try and outdo them so okay Rob anything else you want the congresswoman no, I, I to know I just put on the radar the whole carbon credit thing maybe we can talk about it more later yes. but but uh, certainly the whole climate piece and where that whole thing goes relative to agriculture is pretty big deal yes we will get to that here in the second hour and, and congresswoman Bustos and Kate can always listen to the second hour right on their phones um, as well. Anything you want to add? To well, that? just very quickly on that, Rob, the subcommittee that I'm chairing, uh, our goal is to get answers to how is this going to look, the, the carbon bank. I don't know right. right now, but I can tell you I have been taking an inventory of the other members of Congress who serve on this subcommittee. They want to get answers to this as well. So my goal will be let's get this figured out. How is this going to look? Yep. Thank you, Rob. Brian, anything from your world? Congresswoman, you know, at Growmark FS, we support all aspects of agriculture from grain, seed, chemistry, energy, and I want to say thank you for being on the Ag Committee and doing what you do to help support the American farmer because everything that they do, we help support, and, you know, it's, it's costly to do business. And anything that can help them lead their lives, like we've talked today, make it a better place, we appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. So thank you. Chris Gavin? Yes, thank you very much, Congressman. I appreciate your participation today and coming to Monmouth. That's awesome to see you here again. And um, something a little bit selfish here, but I'm going to throw it out there. The uh, the ECOR Act, which is out there right now, um, I think it's co-sponsored by somebody you mentioned, maybe uh, Ron Kind, uh, Democrat from Wisconsin. Yep. And what this act, this legislation does, is it uh, makes the interest on farm mortgages tax exempt for for banks, and it levels the playing field with farm credit. Um, which is good <laughs> and it also is going to put money back in all of our farmers pockets so um, it's going to result in lower interest rates uh, to farms they're served by community banks nothing against the farm credit system but as you know community banks are a big part of every, all these communities there are 5,000 or less if those all banks go away in those communities it's not good so I'll take a look at it. I, I'm not uh, familiar with it. Ron's a close friend, so I, I'll, I'll look and we'll if we can get on it, we will. I appreciate it. All right, thank, thank you, Chris. You. Okay, Congresswoman Bustos, thank you so much. I, it really means a lot to us that you're able to be here and be a part of this, so that you can gain, you know, right here firsthand knowledge. So thank you for taking the time and good job today. Thank you, Vanessa. And and I would just want to thank everybody who's sitting around the the room here today. I, I learn um, every day from from people who are doing the hard work on the ground and. And uh, that's what you all are doing. So thank you for that. Um, I'd like to take what I learned and go out to Washington and make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And Vanessa, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here with you. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back again. I hope so. All right, we will take our break. It is the 2021 FS Ag Roundtable, the morning panel. We will go ahead and take our 10 to 15 minute break and be back with the second half in just a little while. to the annual FS Spring Ag Roundtable. It's 2021. Our broadcast today is brought to you by Growmark FS, Martin Implement, Compere Financial, OSF Healthcare, McGrew Feedlot and Equipment, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Halcom Oil, H&H Feed, Midwest Bank, Patent Block Grill and Brew Pub, and the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau. Let's jump right back in. And Rob, talk, uh, walk us through the, the carbon markets. What, what does this mean? 
I'm not sure I can walk you through all the complexities of the carbon market um, exactly, Vanessa, but certainly the whole climate aspect is a big deal that we've turned the corner on. It's evident it's coming, so how do we in agriculture embrace it and be part of it and maybe benefit from it? So from, kind of from where I'm sitting, you got you got gobs of carbon credit kind of opportunities that seem to be surfacing. Seem to be pretty complex how you comply, how you participate, how you could possibly be compensated, those kind of things. I, I think the, the ag community in general is eh, may, maybe a little bewildered on where to go. Some include long-term 10 and 20-year contracts. Um, one of the bigger problems I'm kind of see surfacing with this whole carbon credit market for us in ag is the term additionality seems to keep coming up. By that I mean if you are doing the right things right prior, you don't qualify for new carbon credit opportunities because you are already doing it. So what they're looking for are incremental gains and we probably are not rewarding past good actors with that being kind of the premise. So that one um, certainly it, it is an issue for me. And the other one is, how do we be sure, and I think the Congresswoman uh, alluded to it a little bit, how, how they kind of figure out this bigger picture of this carbon market. Uh, it, it could be a possibility, it would seem right now, that the aggregators are the ones that wind up making the money and the farmer or the industry and ag that produce the activity to, as they call it, a carbon assets produced, um, they, they aren't rewarded very highly. So a lot of, lot of complexities, and I'm not sure I've got the answers, probably more questions than, than answers. Jim Lighting, how does carbon markets affect the ethanol industry? Today, uh, the largest effect is uh, California with their LCFS, obviously. And it's really interesting because in their accounting process, uh, ethanol has been the, the biggest contributor to their reduction in carbon intensity in the state. Um, to see the impact and, and what we see coming down the road is very dependent on where either there's movements for either a Midwest or a national uh, low carbon fuel standard. and if and when and how that would be structured is going to be critical on how we see at least from the ethanol industry side of, of into that carbon uh, marketplace and then you look at how the fuel industry uh, how does a petroleum producer become lower carbon? Is it through buying carbon credits? There's there's a lot of unknowns that are out here. There's a lot of things that I think are more in discussion and limbo phase than really getting something drilled down that you can sink your teeth into. And so we're all today uh, kind of standing back. There's some preliminary things going on with carbon sequestration. Uh, there are a there's a group that are trying to put together pipelines and preliminary things from ethanol plants or any other sources of CO2. 
Um, but it's, it's a little preliminary because the reward piece hasn't developed yet. And so when and how that all comes, uh, we may be five, six years down the road. You know, when will legislation clear that air and create that opportunity? And when they do, can it effectively trade? Uh, some of Rob's concerns, who is going to get the benefit of what's out there and how does that benefit uh, reward the people that are really creating the opportunity or the benefit? Ron Moore from the soybean aspect. Sure, thanks Vanessa. Um, to tie into something that Rob said uh, about the additionality part of it. So I'm a farmer, been no-telling for dozens of years and so carbon markets come into play and I can't participate in it because I've been no-telling for dozens of years. So guess what? I'm incentivized for pulling my moldboard plow out of the fence row, plowing everything up for two years, and then I can go back and get that benefit from the carbon sequestration. That is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're disincentivizing continued good practices that help sequester carbon. The other concern I have about this market is, along with the, the aggregators that Rob talked about, um, so there's a company, ABC company that emits carbon. And they're trying to reduce their carbon footprint. So they're gonna buy carbon credits for me so they can continue to emit. That's not a net gain in reduction of carbon emissions. And so there's so many unanswered questions that I have right now. And I'm concerned that this is gonna not amount to Everybody thinks it's going to amount to a windfall for farmers, but I'm not sure it's going to be the windfall that everybody is talking about. Jake, how does this affect you? You think about the elevator and, and your operation. What do you think about how this impacts your future? So, um, from the elevator standpoint, it, we are a huge energy user for about two and a half months of the year and then we're pretty calm. So we also emit dust. We're also very highly regulated already on our dust emissions and controls, that aspects. Um, the biggest issue with this will be trucking. We have a lot of trucks that go up and down the road. How is that going to impact the carbon impact of the grain industry? That's already been a, a big issue for many years that I think biodiesels will help solve that. Um, from a Farm Bureau standpoint, um, they released a video, I believe it was a week ago today, um, talking about all of these points that you guys are coming up. Um, and to use the words that they used out of Bloomington was, we're in the right rooms with the right people, whether in person or virtually. So they're aware of all of these. They're already working on um, trying to educate our legislators on our issues and concerns, whether it is punishing people who have been doing the right practices for 30 years, not including them, who's actually going to benefit from it. Um, they're all aware of it and we're already working hard and close for it. So I think on a Farm Bureau standpoint, they're ahead of the curve, which is gonna be beneficial, I think, for us. Okay, and uh, Wendell Shaman passed me a note that Senator Chuck Rasley said any program that doesn't reward current no-till handwriting <laughs> to Ron's port, a point will not fly. So yeah. that's one one uh, aspect from the, the federal uh, level. Nick, how does 
how does carbon market sequestration apply to the livestock and animal production industry? Well, it's got huge potential, and I'll go back to Ron's comment. I live in central Illinois, Sangamon County, and we've got a coal-burning plant there. Three trains a day come from Montana with low sulfur corn or uh, coal to burn in our plant, and our high sulfur coal goes back to Montana on the same train, same day. And all it is is a trade. Uh, and it doesn't benefit, I mean, I realize it takes concentrations out of the way, but it, it's just mind-boggling to me that it happens that way because they're not reducing the emissions at all. They're just moving them around. I would also, in the same effect of carbon, and I don't know that we're reducing carbon sequestration. I think we're capturing it and delaying the effect of it, or we're storing it. That's, and if we can keep it out of the atmosphere and manage it and, and reduce some of that type of stuff, those are all good things. But from the livestock side, there's huge incentives with cover crops and things of that nature, and actually uh, holding nutrients, uh, whether, it's, whether it's cattle or cover crops, or even in the hog and poultry business, to use those to uh, bank phosphorus, nitrogen, mm -hmm. methane. And, I, and I'll go to years ago, there was incentive to put methane digesters in, and, and very effective, and we can utilize that. <clears throat> One of the challenges is when I invested in those systems, I was forced to go into a buy retail, sell wholesale back into the market. And that doesn't work. Now, that was in Illinois, a little more Illinois-specific, that those impacts really didn't return. It goes back to the farmer. If I invest in something, I need some return back so I can plan for the future. I can't invest in something that's a negative return or doesn't come back in a fashion than not doing it. So those incentives have to be thought about. And whether you're a no-till or whoever, you're going to have to come up with a practices page that is uniform for everybody because as we look at carbon sequester or sulfur or whatever, there were winners in those games that disadvantaged the rest of the market and then we sit there with no progress. That's a tough thing and not only in the United States, but it really is a burden when we implement this and add those costs to the world market and they don't participate on an equal basis, whether it's trade or tariffs or having to invest in environmental uh, efficiencies that the rest of the world doesn't and we are left holding the bag and there's no progress but it's a cost that kept us out of the market. It shows up in the grain side quite readily but I, it's a huge impact throughout the whole ag sector and when we think about protein needs worldwide whether it's through grain or beef it's insatiable uh, meat proteins it's not going to stop and the more efficient folks that are going to provide that are going to add to the world climate and efficiency, but we can't afford to have inefficient systems out there that compete against our efficiency that we've invested so much money in. And the rest of the world has to come along. Even though face value, it looks like the U.S. has these challenges and they want to address it, but we are not the worst actors in the world. Uh, you've got to look at it a world concept and the amount of output for the inputs that we put into it, nobody can touch us and we're forced to compete in markets that have uh, no responsibility to that just because they have no money or they're poor. So that's my little podium. Okay. <laughs> Brian Manahan, one of the strengths of sustainability in agriculture has been the nutrient loss reduction strategy that uh, folks like yourself have, have worked on for a long, I mean, this has been going on for decades. Do you know um, how we're coming along with that and are other countries participating in the same type? 
Yeah, it's, it's an important topic. Uh, it's, you know, ever-changing. Uh, you know, when you look at the nutrients that go into soil, uh, how are they lost, whether it's through erosion, whether it's through you know, evaporation, whether it's through moving around. So it, it's a topic that's ongoing, Vanessa. It's, a, it's an important one. And I'll also add, you know, it has also a relationship to this carbon you know, situation that we've been talking about. You know, Growmark's been monitoring that for a long time now, the Growmark FS system. We have an agronomy team and a marketing team that is watching this very closely because you think of our growers, our community that we service, the FS member locations and, and those growers out there, you know, cover crops and no-till are the main practices that are gonna, you know, support that and have to be implemented. So how does that affect, you know, seed sales, chemistry, to, to make all that work? So it's getting interesting. Uh, so again, whether it's nutrient loss or the carbon markets, it, it's a uh, interesting time that we're in because we're seeing both evolve into pretty big, uh, big play each and every day that's in the news. and. Uh, uh, again, we take it on ourselves to take an active part because, you know, we recommend allowing for these markets to mature and to, you know, get understood. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, our system, the FS system at Growmark, we're going to help our customers participate somehow, some way, as they develop. So, right now, I know uh, it's been going on for years. It's been talked about, but it's starting to come to a head more and more, and we're watching it closely. Ron, with the countries you've traveled to, did you see these same type of sustainability uh, agriculture practices in place? In some of them, yes. Uh, the one that has, that at least as far along as, as uh, the United States is Brazil, and they've got some um, legal requirements that they can only, if you take, if you have 100 acres in Brazil, like in certain areas you can only farm 30% uh, of 30 acres and the other 70% has to be left in a natural state. Um, so that being said, they still have 150 million acres that they can bring in to, to, to row crop production, um, going from pasture lands and, and uh, so they're working on it, but they still have a long ways to go. Most of the other countries I visited um, are, are like what Nick said, they're poor, they don't have the requirements, uh, environmental protection requirements. Some of the aquaculture things that I've seen, you wouldn't want to eat the tilapia off of an offshore cage because there's an outhouse sitting on the property, on the top of the plank over where the fish are. You can imagine what that means, but it um, they're concentrated and the, the water is, is foul and, and um, you have to be careful what kind of fish you order or where it comes from sometimes. But So there is a dramatic difference between the environmental regulations that we have in, in uh, the United States and some of the other countries that I've visited. How about you, Rob? You've also been to, what about Cuba? What kind of opportunities you guys saw there? Are those still in play? In, in what respect, Vanessa? Help you, me. Didn't uh, Congresswoman Bustos say they headed down there looking for opportunities? Yeah. What, and I think you went down to Cuba, too. Yeah, no, as far as uh, um, a market that's, like a, a, she mentioned, 90 miles off our shore, there, there are lots of opportunities. There's lots of investment from other countries there as well. So oh. folks like Brazil and China and others, are they see the opportunity also, and uh, they're investing there as well. So there is an opportunity there, certainly. Ooh. 
what do you think needs to happen for us to start investing there and taking oh, advantage? We as a country, as a government, just need to declare we want to do business with them, and that probably happens pretty pretty easily or readily Okay. from a pure logistics standpoint. And one of the reasons I ask that, Rob, is, is there's a lot of information coming out about Africa uh, and investment being made in their infrastructure there, especially in that sub-Sahara area and on the coast. Um, that seems to be valuable land. China would love not to be able to do business with us, probably, yeah. and their ability to to garner what they need from other parts of the world. That's why, as we mentioned earlier, our infrastructure and lock and dams, in, um, inland waterways, all those kind of things are pr pretty important to be able to compete in those markets uh, on a high level. So, okay, Jim, anything else you want to add to this part of the discussion? Um. I really don't have any any huge additions. We've covered a lot of things. I think that uh, relative to uh, the carbon piece, uh, we've gone through carbon intensity of fuels. Uh, E15 is our target right now as far as Big River and the industry uh, to give us an opportunity to both build ag markets for our producers and, and market demand for our products and as we clean up tailpipe emissions and uh, create uh, less carbon intensive fuels. Okay. And Chris, anything else you want to add on the carbon market uh, discussion from the banking industry? You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, I could not add anything, but I've noticed that uh, that Nick might be a little more of a capitalist than a socialist. That's one thing I just <laughs> added. <laughs> Jim, I have another question for you. I, I watched a video on agriculture that was in Iowa, a pretty large event, and he discussed, the gentleman discussed um, the UK with leaving the European Union, that there may be opportunity there. Do you hear anything about that yet? Uh, the UK is increasing their uh, ethanol content in their fuel. We're also seeing that in Canada, and a lot of progress being made there. Uh, so I do think that it'll provide a, a small growth opportunity in the UK. Um, and, and we're into export markets in general now. We were fortunate enough uh, in November, December, and January to see some movement of ethanol into China, uh, but they're back out of the export window. Uh, Mexico has been uh, debating going to a 10% standard and unfortunately the political environment there it appears that that's struggling. Uh, so uh, UK one of uh, one of many areas in which uh, we're looking at different opportunities and seeing different actions being taken in, in other countries. Canada is moving forward with some um, carbon intensity requirements uh, that's going to drive um, where their ethanol comes from. Some of it is somewhat protectionist and our associations are working hard to make sure that uh, U.S. producers, U.S. agriculture has a level playing field uh, in Canada as they proceed with low carbon fuel standards, but it is a concern of ours where a Canadian producer may get a benefit that uh, a U.S. producer doesn't. So there is a lot of activity out there uh, and we're trying to keep our, our thumb on the pulse. Chris? Yeah, one thing uh, along this line is we have seen a, a quite a few solar projects in the last 24 months that and we've um, the, some of our customers have, have, have built 
Um, and so I think if that's, that's something if you've got, especially if you've got hog buildings or you've got a, a, a grain facility uh, where you're drying grain, storing grain, um, we've seen some 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 of those deals work very well. So uh, anybody on the on this listening to us today, and if you haven't looked into that, and you're a producer, and you've and you, you should at least look at it. I think everybody should look at that and see if there's any opportunity on the solar on the solar front. Okay. Ron, Soybean Association, uh, any new, I know 2020 you couldn't get out in person and see people, but any new markets, has the UK come up at all? Yeah, the UK has come up as a discussion. Um, we're hopeful that the Biden administration will continue to um, make inroads into the, the trade negotiations. The European Union is still a challenge. They don't think like we do uh, for the most part. and. Um, but uh, it's been, um, you know, with the COVID thing going on, we've had several virtual meetings. We had Commodity Classic was virtual this year instead of in, in person. Um, but we did have an a, a ASA board meeting last week in person. If you chose to, chose to, you could go in person. So the, the restrictions are starting to ease, but I'm, I'm not sure that everybody's as comfortable at, as they would like to be as they go forward, hopefully when all the vaccines get widely um, taken, why we can get back to normal. And and uh, just for example, I I local coffee shop in Roseville hadn't been in there for a year until Monday this week. So um, it was good to get back and see some of the folks that we visit with down there. I assume you're talking about the Village Bean? Uh, no, the lunchbox. Oh, the lunchbox. Lunch well, we'll box. give them both plugs today because yeah. it's good to good to have customers again. Okay, um, the other thing I wanted to ask, Rob, anything else on on the UK that you had? No. Didn't think you guys had been discussing it very much. Okay. Finally, um, gentlemen, if we could uh, talk a little bit about immigration reform and how that may impact um, our agriculture. I'll just start with you, Ron. Yeah, we we think that. Uh, the H-2A program needs to be modified to make it a little easier because there is a significant uh, labor shortage in agriculture um, and not so much in the row crop part, but when you get into the, the vegetable production and the livestock production, there's a definite need for um, people to be there um, to work to work in the buildings and work in the fields. And so we've, we're encouraging the administration to come up with a reasonable solution to the H-2A and immigration problem. Okay. Nick? Yeah, the uh, animal ag industry uh, really relies on immigration, it probably more so in the meat processing, packing side of things. And it's, it's really complicated. And we see the crisis right now on the border, whether people want to believe it or not. But the availability of labor and what rules we will follow for income or minimum wage or benefits, there is a bit of a, you know, concern with testing and health. I remember when the pandemic started, I was around somebody who had to be isolated for 14 days, and I don't believe that's happening on the border right now. So there's going to be this influx of that type of labor. It's unskilled labor. It's going to put pressure on our labor that we rely on now, even though, even though we are in a shortage. But if you look at the packing industry and the transition in and out of that industry, uh, it's going to be pretty impactful. And it's, there's a burden that comes with that because of education and bar uh, language barriers. And it's a whole new generation of folks that are not used to our norms and whatever's going on. It, it has potential to explode. 
like like anything else in the crisis that comes like you know pretty shocking with the the covid thing but like farmers you know give us a little time and a little ingenuity uh, and we can kind of figure things out but don't force it on us so much that we can't stand it but in time those will work out but just the fear of the unknown of what's going to happen and the pressures it's going to put out there i will tell you that the ag community is going to rely more and more on uh, immigrant labor maybe low income, uh, income labor and depends on what regulations with uh, minimum wage and some of those employment things happen on how it's going to impact and eventually it's the cost of production that we're going to be faced with and goes back to our bottom line in agriculture even though we might not be accessing that labor somewhere in our supply distribution change our industry depends on that very good labor uh, very dedicated very faithful and you know I, I guess some people discriminate on that side of the fence for, but from ag standpoint it's viable to what we do in an everyday business whether it's directly or indirectly and there's going to be more and more dependence on that so we we have a chance to get it right and I, I know Sherry's not here and maybe we can pass that along it's it's one thing to talk about our group we understand those issues but really your listeners out there have to take it to the next level on the representatives because they're the ones that are going to make the decision on that and uh, it's it's vital and what we see today is a knee-jerk reaction and you know it's painful we really got to be able to look out there five ten years and what's this going to do and what are our needs I, I don't think agriculture knows what our needs are going to be in that sector for labor uh, and we talked about age and retirement and who's going to farm and how are we going to do it unanswered questions uh, these discussions that we're having here today are a step in the right direction and wherever we go after this meeting we need to take this discussion into those other meetings also which I know we do uh, but it's great to put an emphasis on it and, and thanks for the opportunity and it's a little unknown but uh, that's my best stab at it and Jim you're unique because you have two different well three different states with three different minimum wages so would it be easier just to have that $15 minimum wage or is that a pretty significant impact on your business um, the uh, employees that uh, that we bring on I don't think we have any starting wages at sure. 15 or below uh, somewhat of skilled employees um, and so I don't see a real impact uh, because we're ready there mm -hmm. uh, as we look at uh, the immigration which where you started is uh, a, a minimal impact to our industry today but uh, hiring people, hiring labor even into our plants, we're having a more difficult time uh, right now than we've had since I've been in this industry. And so I think I was, um, I was at 3.5% unemployment. Unlimit, yeah. So that labor pool has, has tightened up and I think nationally we're getting down to 6% or below. So we're starting to get back into more normal levels. Uh, and as we move forward, especially if we see the growth and we see uh, the things that are being uh, anticipated with the stimulus package, uh, we could have a labor issue in this country and then how do we address that how do we find uh, 
the skilled employees that we need, whether it be in an ethanol plant or whether it be in any of these other industries. How do you train those people? The language barriers you speak of, all of these are going to become uh, big issues as uh, we look to assimilate people into our society and into our workforce. They're huge. Jake? So Nick mentioned um, supply chain and immigration and labor all just kind of being connected. That struck home with me. Um, right now we have a pretty big disruption in the supply chain just across the border with a big old windstorm that took out a lot of grain bins. Haven't been on the other side of that before. Um, people will give you 12 months to rebuild, but if you go two years, it's going to be pretty detrimental to your business. And having just put up another grain bin in Cameron, most of the labor that does that is immigrant work, and there's going to be a, a fast surge there to get those bins either rebuilt or to get temporary storage put up or for them to find a solution and if they don't have the manpower to do it and you don't build one of those in a month it takes three four months of building nonetheless the 10 12 months of planning beforehand and engineering and concrete and all the uphill battles ahead of that um, if that doesn't get going there's going to be a hole over there and you hate to see it for those uh, farmers around there to have nowhere grow a great crop and then they got to drive three hours to handle it somehow so it'll be interesting to see how that all develops over there and immigrant labor is going to be a huge part of that Jake, I got a solution for that. Let's yep. build livestock there. We won't have to haul it anywhere. <laughs> Rob? I'm probably out of my league on this Im immigration topic, but if you listen to the news and the floodgates from Central America, they're apparently happening right now. We got a lot of folks coming into the country, but if we look at Jim's point on, on the bigger picture aspect of things, uh, when you begin to think about some of these social programs, and one of my fears is this whole infrastructure bill that they're proposing what are all the social programs that are being kind of with the sympathetic vote for infrastructure being shoved into that like free junior college education or free daycare or time off for this or that or whatever or our problem is in many cases I'm not so sure it's lack of people to do the work but lack of people that want to work be because of all the social programs we have and bigger fear going down the road is there's going to be a payday in our country here that's going to come at some point and who's who's going to be the payor in that payday and I'm, I'm afraid it's a lot of us uh, sitting around this room which we, we, we we're recipients of a check but we may give it all back in the next couple of years when we think about the tax aspects that could could come in and uh, affect us that way too so a lot a lot of things in the equation not simple Brian, anything you want to add to this discussion? As I'm out uh, supporting our Growmark FS and member locations, what I hear the most is, you know, finding good people. It's hard to not only find them, but keep them. And, you know, the biggest uh, deficit or area that we see there's a challenge is finding good operators. Those folks that can, you know, handle the rigs and spraying and, you know, do, pulling tanks and doing all those different services. But, you know, Nick, to your point, and I, I wrote it down, just we got to, and, and Ron, continuing to encourage our administration to look at the availability you know, of labor and how does that affect us, not just at the farm, but, you know, throughout the country in all aspects of our business. So it's a big topic and uh, hopefully we can continue to grow and find good people to help us do these jobs at the wages that we talked or even more.
And Chris Gavin, you and I both speak with many, many customers in our local area, and the number one complaint has been, or challenge, I should say, has been can't find, and these are multiple different industries, whether it's auto, banking, retail, food service, finding good help, good people that would like to work. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and also, it being in Monmouth, Illinois, is we're kind of a unique, unique community with Smithfield being here and, and the immigrant, immigrant community we have here. Um, and Vanessa and I have both been involved in a group that's been studying that and, and figuring out ways to help improve the overall. I mean, it's here, it's, you know, they're, they're a big part of our community. And I, as a community, we haven't done enough to embrace, you know, the cultures that we have. And so there's been a lot of effort going into that. And but one of the things that come out in some of those meetings is like, is the people that are coming here to work at Smithfield, um, they that's that's how they get here. But we've heard from them is like we want opportunity beyond that, you know. And so I do think there's the Smithfield the farmland is the conduit to bring that some of that population into our community but they don't always want to stay they don't, they don't want they don't want to stay there for necessarily want to stay there for 20 years you know so there i think there's opportunity there um for ag in this area um on some of that employment that's at smithfield or some of those workers at smithfield you know smithfield doesn't want to hear me say that probably but um but no i i do they're looking they're, they're here to stay um and they're a big part of our community and we're as a community we're looking at ways to embrace that and do a better job um but yeah i think i think there might be some opportunities for for the and for the labor side okay all right gentlemen we are approaching the noon hour and i know that uh, patent block uh, grill and brew pub has brought us some lunch so that's a positive uh getting hungry it's getting to be the noon hour ron moore thank you so much chairman american soybean association anything you would like to add this is national agriculture week and we're getting ready to get in the fields uh what would you like to say to your fellow farmers pay attention when i'm driving down the road with my tractor and planter because i'll have my flashing lights on and it'll be an smv sign on the back of the planter but I'm only going about 18 miles an hour. And so be safe, that's my message to, this is National Ag Week and there's gonna be a lot of tractors and, and planters and field cultivators out on the road. Uh, seed tenders that don't go 70 miles an hour, they only go about 35 or 40. So just be, be aware that we're out there and we're getting ready to put a crop in and, and produce food for the people in this country. Okay, thank you, Ron. Nick Anderson, Illinois Livestock Development Group. You're gonna stick around for the second uh, panel because there's so many great livestock uh, folks coming on board. Sure, and I hope I haven't uh, capitalized on my uh, talking points too long. I seem like I talk too long occasionally, but uh, thanks again for the sponsors. And, and I just calculated, Chris, I think I have known you for 38 years, <laughs> if you can believe that. Uh, clear, and my economics came from Western, so you're part of my thought process there. But I, I understand you totally. Uh, yeah, appreciate yeah. <laughs> uh, the efforts that you folks, this can't happen without people supporting this type of meeting, so I, I deeply appreciate it. Of it. And Jim Lighting with us, Big River Resources President and CEO. Thank you very much for supporting uh, our, uh, our ag programming every single month as well as these ag roundtables. Thank you so much. Anything you'd like to add? 
Uh, just thank you, Vanessa, for the opportunity to participate, and thank you for everyone else here and and the ag community. Big River is uh, uh, proud to be part of and support the ag community and our rural communities where we work. Okay. Jake Armstrong, Warren Henderson Farm Bureau President, thanks again for all of the uh, ag uh, programming sponsorships that you guys do as well, and, and good luck in the planting season. Thank you. Um, we're hoping to have a safe planting season in the area around here. We just cut some commercials this morning for it, so keep your uh, ears out for those warnings, and thank you for everything you do, Vanessa. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Rob Elliott, I appreciate you being here. Again, another supporter uh, of agriculture programming in this area with Elliott Brothers Thank you so much. Thank you, Vanessa, for the opportunity. And I thought we had a pretty good session here today, particularly with the Congresswoman here. We covered three of the topics that were kind of close to what I I was interested in, when, with those being infrastructure and uh, how we play in this carbon market and with climate being a focus going forward, as well as how we continue to work on level in the playing field versus mm -hmm. the electricity uh, aspect of our transportation fleet going forward. So good good session here today. Thank you very much. Brian Manahan, Growmark FS. And again, I hope you enjoyed your first uh, round table and hope you'll come back. I did, and I definitely would love to come back. And I just want to take a moment to not only thank this room, but Vanessa for the invitation to join you and to our Growmark FS farming customers out there. You know, we work very closely with many of them out there for their, all their agronomy needs. So thank you for your business to those that are listening today and for those of you in the room that support the Growmark FS group. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Brian. Chris Gavin, thank you as well. Uh, I know you support more than just ag programming with us. We really appreciate the long, long-standing partnership, and thanks for hosting the event and feeding us today. Oh, you bet. I'm glad to be involved in this. Uh, Vanessa, you do a, a great job uh, for agriculture. You do a great job for the community. Um, so uh, we really appreciate that. Um, I would just add one thing. If, you, if you're out there listening and you have not taken advantage of any of the programs with the relief bills, I would encourage you to to really look into it. It looks like these programs are going to be extended through May now. Um, and so, yes, I'd encourage our listeners, if they haven't taken advantage of those, to, to do that. So, and thanks again. Okay. You've been listening to the 2021 FS Spring Ag Roundtable. Thanks to uh, Mike Weaver. He's engineering. And Sean Temple back at the station on the board. Appreciate that. Mark supervising us, if anybody can tell. Uh, Mark Richardson supervised. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, appreciate the team and everything they do. Growmark FS, Martin Implement, Compier Financial, OSF Healthcare, McGrew Feedlot, Big River Resources, Elliott Brothers Seed Company, Halcom Oil, H&H Feed, Midwest Bank, Patent Block Grill and Brew Pub, and the Warren Henderson Farm Bureau. We'll be back at one o'clock with the afternoon panel.